Welcome to the Ex-Good Girl Podcast. What is an ex-good girl? Someone who has decided to stop making other people comfortable at her own expense, to stop abandoning what she wants for her life out of fear of what other people will think, and to stop pretending that everything is fine when it's not. If you're a woman who feels exhausted by constant people-pleasing and perfectionism, and you're ready to stop but you just don't know how, you're in the right place. I'm Sarah Bybee Fisk, the Stop People Pleasing Coach, and I will teach you what you need to know to get out of that constant cycle of doubt, guilt, and resentment, and into a life that feels powerful and free. Enjoy the episode. Hi. Over the next two episodes, I'm going to tell you my story of leaving the religious tradition I was raised in, the LDS Church, or Mormonism as it's popularly known. It was the hardest and bravest thing I've ever done. And I believe that it's important for you to know the context in which many of my thoughts and experiences were formed and how they made me who I am today and why this work of becoming an ex-good girl is so important to me. Thank you so much for listening. One of the things that I think is important whenever you start listening to someone's point of view Um, like on this podcast is that you have an understanding of where um, I'm coming from and the experiences that I have had that kind of shape the opinions and views that I have. And so that's this episode, like the, the experiences and the, um, the things that I have had as part of my life experience that uh, kind of bring me to the points of view that I'm going to share. And so this is it. This is my story. I grew up in um, a family of, I'm the oldest of six kids, and I grew up in Central Valley, California. So a really small farming community. Um, I am uh, Latina, but didn't ever feel Latina growing up because where we lived there were a lot of uh, migrant workers who follow, you know, crops for different kinds of work, and they were one kind of Mexican. And then there were a lot of other families that were like generationally Mexican or had more of a, a heritage that they celebrated, Mexican culture that they celebrated, and we didn't really do that. So I never really felt like I had a culture growing up, but what we did have was church. I was raised uh, in the LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. Um, the church today prefers that uh, Mormons not be used in reference to them or the congregation. I I understand that sometimes I still slip up, so I will say LDS instead of Mormon even though, like I said, Mormon still slips out because it's what I used all growing up, but I grew up LDS. And in the little town where we lived, we didn't have family. We didn't have, um, you know, a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles that lived nearby. They lived several hours away or they lived in Utah, but we had the church and the church really was after our own like little nuclear family, it was the next group of people that I grew up with, that I was friends with, that taught me, that loved me. And I have such 
fond, fond memories of, of growing up LDS. It was for me. And, and even in my memory, it was just, it was loving. It was um, where I had deep, meaningful relationships and I didn't know or really understand at the time how some of the things that I was being taught would influence me. And we're going to get into that. But I also have a lot of affection for the experience of how I grew up. And I think that's one of the the things that I'd first like to point out is that some an experience can be more than one thing. It can be full of love and full of support and also full of harmful teachings. Uh, One of the things that I was taught is that my value was connected to how I acted in the world. And so in the LDS um, religious, the, the way that LDS churches are run, there are worthiness interviews and they start fairly young, usually around the time that someone is 12 But actually, even to get baptized, you have an interview with someone who is called the bishop, who is the clergy over the congregation in a geographic location. And so when I was eight, I got to, or I had the experience of going to a bishop and he would ask me some questions about, and and, and at eight, my general experience, and there are people who have very different experiences from mine, and I also want to say that explicitly. My experience growing up LDS might be very different from others, people's um, experiences or your experience or others that you have heard about. So I, I don't get the sense that at eight years old, bishops are really trying to drill down on, are you keeping the commandments? Are you worthy in a heavy handed way? I didn't really feel that until I was older. So starting at around 12 years old, girls join an organization called Young Women. And we begin to have these worthiness interviews twice a year so that we can answer for our keeping of the commandments. You're asked very explicitly about different aspects of your behavior whether or not you are obeying the commandments, and especially about sexual behavior. I had a bishop ask me once if I touched myself. I had no idea what he was talking about. And he explained what masturbation was to me. And so one of the reasons that I bring that up is because very early on, I learned that men outside of me held power to determine my worthiness, my value, to provide information to me that I might not have been ready for or known about. And it created a power differential that I really was not fully aware of until much, much later in life. And I think in religions where there is an emphasis on outward behavior as some kind of proof of 
worthiness or of um, value that there's always the person who gets to make that call, right? There's always the person who is in charge of determining if you're worthy or not. And so in the LDS religious tradition, that is the bishop. There are others, you know, above him, but at, at the very least, it's the bishop with whom you have these worthiness interviews. And so those interviews are some of the most painful and um, really heartbreaking memories that I have because the purpose of the interview can be positive, I guess, in some people's view. But for me, there was always somewhere where I was falling short, always somewhere where I wasn't doing enough, always somewhere where I could do more. And that's where my attention was drawn Every single time I had one of these interviews, it was always about, in my mind, and again, I I don't actually even know that the bishops who interviewed me intended this, maybe, maybe not, but the effect on me was to constantly focus on where I wasn't doing enough. My perfectionism really started to grow during that time. I've gone back and reread, you know, journal entries that I made during that time. And a really common refrain was, you know, God expects more from me. I'm not doing enough. I have to try harder. I must be disappointing him. And then doubling down on some kind of um, behavior plan, you know, I'm going to read my scriptures and say my prayers every single day. I am going to, um, you know, try to really excel in this particular type of behavior so that God is happy with me. And it was always with genuine um, concern for my soul. And so one of the things that I was never taught was that my behavior is actually separate from my value. My value as a human, as a child of God, which I was taught to believe I am, is separate from the way I choose to act. That my mistakes, that the things that maybe I regret or wish I didn't did, or even commandments that I broke, didn't make me less of a valuable person that my value was inherent and complete and intact no matter what, and that I was worthy of unconditional love from myself, from my parents, and from the God that I worshipped. The mixed message was that God's love for me was dependent on my keeping of the commandments that he gave me. And I'm calling God a he, because that's what I believed at the time. And so it was, I had the experience of growing up, always feeling nervous that I was not doing enough. Always anxious that if I were to be weighed in the balance, I would definitely be found wanting And that the only way to make up for that was to act better, to do better. Another purpose of these worthiness interviews was to go and confess when you had broken commandments. And so 
I had those interviews as well, where they were initiated by me because of my guilt about having broken this commandment or that. And again, it sets up this power scenario where I didn't believe that I was capable of taking care of myself without the approval or the, um, yeah, really just the stamp of approval from an authority figure outside of me who said, yes, you have confessed, you are absolved of whatever, you know, you've done, go your way and sin no more. And so it's really easy to see how for someone who grows up in a religion where the authority is outside of you, you end up having to go seek that authority's blessing for different aspects of your life. And I didn't really understand how heavy that was and what and what it was doing to me. Because what it did was it set up this general worldview that to know if I was right, to know if I was doing it right or acting right or doing things the right way, someone outside of me had to confirm that for me. And that I wasn't capable of knowing that for myself because I'm the same person who was doing things wrong, right? I'm the same person who was quote unquote breaking commandments. And so I had a faulty system for knowing what was right and wrong. And someone outside of me had to do that for me. So growing up in a small town, growing up feeling like I didn't fit at all in the predominant race in my school, you know, being Mexican, I wasn't really Mexican. We had this kind of weird Mormon family. I was the oldest of six kids. We drove this like big red and brown diesel van, which um, you could hear coming from miles away. And so I just remember like waiting for my mom to pick me up after school and hearing the diesel van coming from, you know, several blocks away. And uh, my friend saying, you know, Sarah, your mom's coming and just feeling, um, feeling some embarrassment about different aspects of my life that weren't common and that I didn't really know how to explain to other people. Nevertheless, I found a lot of refuge and community at church. And it was almost, um, it, it was drilled into me that being the weird Mormon girl was actually what God wanted. God wanted me to be peculiar. He wanted me to be apart from the world, quote unquote. And that the world was actually this kind of scary, unknown, sinful place. And that I could not be trusted. So again, my own faulty, my own internal direction system was faulty because I made mistakes and had to go confess it to an authority figure. So there was a lot, I lived with a lot of fear about the world, about the things that were in the world, wanting to be a part of the world. And so I had a lot of struggles growing up with like wanting to be popular, but not being popular, wanting to participate in things that my peers were participating in, you know, drinking and, and uh, partying, but being afraid, like literally afraid 
of what would happen to me if I went and did that. A lot of anxiety about doing it right and keeping the rules. And so it was a huge relief to me when I graduated from high school and I went to Brigham Young University, which is the university in Utah that the LDS church owns and operates. Because now I was around like thousands of Mormons and I finally felt like there was a home for me and I didn't have to explain myself to everybody. And I didn't have to, um, you know, have people wonder about my weirdness because we were all weird together and it was really great. I felt relief and I felt like I was coming home. The only thing that was different was that there were not a lot of Brown girls at BYU. And so I felt like I stuck out. And again, there was something that separated me from really being integrated with the the predominantly white culture at that time at BYU. And that brings up something else that I'd like to point out. It is normal to feel like you don't fit in. I felt like I didn't fit in with all the Mexicans in my high school, right? And then I go to BYU and I don't really fit in with all the white people at BYU. That's just a normal experience because what brains do is they look for differences. And the the fact that brains do that is part of our survival mechanism to know who is in our group and who is out of our group, who we can rely on and who we can't, but it's just normal. And so if you feel like there's aspects of you that don't belong, it's pretty normal. And I say that not to diminish it, but just to normalize it. It's very normal to feel like, you know, you don't belong. And so I always joke and say that BYU made me a Mexican because it it was at BYU that I really decided to take a hold of my Latin heritage and learn about it. I started taking Spanish classes and I had had some marginal interest in Spanish before. And I started really being curious about the part of myself, the Mexican part that I had never really explored before. And so at BYU, I just kind of threw myself into doing all the Mormon things and serving in all the different Mormon positions at church that were available to women. And I went on a mission for the church, and that's an 18-month period of service where you are sent to another part of the country or part of the world to teach other people about the church and encourage them to be baptized. I served my mission in Bolivia. And I was when I went to Bolivia, it was 1995. And it was, again, something can be more than one thing. It was an amazing experience. I loved Because everybody needs a break sometimes, the Ex-Good Girl podcast is on a four-week break, and we will be back June 5th with new episodes. Until then, listen to some of your old favorites, get caught up, or join my free Stop People Pleasing Facebook group by finding the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to connect with you. Getting a little emotional. I love the people so much.
And it was also hard. It was hard physically. It was um, the third world country. It's the poorest. It still is today to this day, the poorest country in, in South America. There was a lot of physical hardship. Um, sleeping on a mattress that was made out of hay instead of, you know, a more comfortable mattress that I was used to and the the food and the culture. But I really, truly learned to love and felt so loved by the people in Bolivia. And I continue to have relationships with people to this day and with some of my some of the other people who were missionaries at the time, one of the things that is a great blessing to me to come out of that service is to to work in Bolivia now with a nonprofit organization called Yapai Bolivia that seeks to alleviate some of the effects of such extreme poverty that I lived in and got to know well as a missionary. And I guess I should say, I didn't live in extreme poverty. We always had a decent-ish place to live and plenty of food. So I don't want to equate my situation with theirs at all. But it was a seminal experience for me to really connect to Spanish, to really learn it well, and to, um, to just dedicate myself to something larger than me. At the same time, it was also dangerous There were a lot of things that happened that could have really gone badly. And I know that there are many missionaries who die and suffer and are sick. And there are some who don't. And members of the church really like to ascribe it to miracles and God's hand. And I understand that. And so... I had my appendix out on my on my mission and it was an emergency surgery and at the time it felt miraculous that I had been spared you know more pain and that I was in such a precarious situation and it it turned out okay but then there are other people that it doesn't turn out well for and so I don't know how to explain that god who lets one missionary in one place die, and then another missionary in another place has a successful surgery on her appendix and is able to, you know, get back to work. So there are some things about my mission that I have now realized were quite traumatic and too much for a 22-year-old young woman to handle in a foreign country. And so my mission, while it is probably one of the most eventful um, change-making experiences in my life, there were also moments of danger where I was not safe, where I should have had additional protection and help and didn't have access to it. I came home and... um, just was very, I was very, very, very dedicated to being Mormon and to doing, sorry, LDS, and to doing all of the things that were required to be a good LDS woman. I chose a career path in at BYU elementary education, largely because I knew it would be compatible with having a family and staying home. And yet it would still give me a potential career career 
uh, a teaching career if, you know, we needed to work. My ideal and the ideal that was really drilled into me since very, very young was that I would stay home and I would have children, as many children as I could have, and that I would dedicate myself to taking care of them and to providing a home that was loving and, you know, well-kept. It didn't, didn't have to be rich, you know, didn't, the, the ideal wasn't necessarily money, but very early into my little brain was introduced this idea that women stay home, they have babies, they dedicate themselves to taking care of those babies, and that that is what God wants for them. Strangely enough, that's also what the patriarchy wants for women. (laughs) And the LDS faith just takes the words of patriarchy and puts them in God's mouth. So now it's God who wants you to stay home with children. It's God who wants you to have as many children as you are physically or financially capable of having, because what you are taught is that the more babies that are born into LDS homes, the better, because they can then be raised in the one true church on the earth. And I totally believed it. And my life after my mission really became about fulfilling to the best of my ability, that role that was laid out for me. I met my husband. We got married in the LDS temple in Salt Lake. We moved to Houston and started getting ready to have a family. And I never asked if it was what I wanted. Um, I never stopped to really consider that I might not want it. It just felt like what I wanted, what was right. And so my husband and I both worked for a couple of years. I taught school in Houston, Texas, and then our kids started to come and we had Rachel And then 13 months later, we had twin boys, Adam and Jonathan. And that was a lot of kids really fast. And the thing that mothers never get told is that their bodies are going to go through this often traumatic experience of childbirth. And then you're going to have a baby to take care of. And so you're never going to be able to recover from the act of giving birth before you now have this infant to take care of that needs a lot of care from you. And so I went from baby to babies and just stayed home with them. And I was, I was home. I think back on that time now and after the twins were born, my parents so generously were worried about us not having any help. And so generously hired someone to come and help us. And she was my, (laughs) she was like my only adult 
conversation simulation. She was a woman who was much older um, from our church congregation. She was wonderful. She helped a lot, but she also had her ideas about what I should be doing. She was a La Leche League nursing instructor. And so she was telling me that I needed to be feeding my babies on demand. And because I am kind of primed already to believe outside authority figures, um, I tried to do it. And I felt like such a, such a failure for not being able to just nurse these babies whenever they wanted. I had a 13 month old. I remember sitting on the couch crying silently. She was in the kitchen as I was nursing one of the boys, smelling my shirt, which smelled like, you know, old, you know, spoiled milk because you're just nursing all the time and just thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this all the time, but I, I have to, I loved my babies and I wanted to nurse them, but the feeling of being trapped is one that I'm very, very familiar with. And I think a lot of moms, just this little tiny human who is dependent on you, the fact that you can't leave for more than a couple hours before your milk comes in and it starts to get really uncomfortable and you've got to go back and feed a baby. And even if you pump or bottle feed, there's just this constant tie to your child, which again, can be more than one thing. It can be, and it was just so lovely. I remember my favorite time to nurse was at night when it was dark and quiet and I could just hold my babies. And, um, that felt magical. And then, you know, that 5 a.m. or 3 a.m. feeding doesn't feel quite so magical. And so it can be more than one thing. I loved having my children and it was hard. And I often felt trapped. Like I just had, I had put all these events in motion and now I just had everybody to take care of. So I just did all the Mormon things. And I really dedicated myself to serving inside and outside the church and really was the poster girl for, for being LDS. I did all of the things. I held all the positions that women were allowed to have. And there were times when it was really joyful and satisfying. There were times when it was very draining and hard but I was genuinely committed to, to living my life faithful to the principles taught by the LDS church. Now I need to rewind for just a minute because something happened when I was getting, uh, when I, after I'd met my husband and I really had no idea what kind of effect it would have on my religious life but let's rewind. So I come home from Bolivia in 1995 and then I meet my husband in um, 1998. And as he and I are going to get married in 1999, his brother comes out to us as gay. He had just come home from his own mission in Mexico and he lets us know that he is gay. And I think at the time, Dan and I had a very, very typical LDS reaction to the news that someone is gay. We 
basically said, we love you, but we know that it's wrong to be gay because that's what the church teaches. The church teaches that it's a choice and that it's a wrong choice. And so we hope you will make the right choice and not be gay. The only way that I can share this story is with a lot of compassion for where I was at the time and a lot of gratitude because Dan's brother, Craig, who came out to us, was so gentle and patient and has been just the most gracious human possible as he shared that and came out to us and we gave him that reception that I just described of like, love the sinner, hate the sin. But there was something that happened. It started happening in 1999 because I loved Craig. And as I got to know him, as I became part of his family, I began to see him and his struggles. And I began to believe him when he said, Sarah, I am not choosing this. Who in their right mind What LDS person would choose to be gay? And he was right. It didn't make any sense. I saw his struggles. I saw his tears. I saw the way that his heart was breaking over his his sexuality and its incompatibility with what the church he loved so much was teaching about him. And... It took a really long time. I always like to say that my mind is kind of like a a crock pot. (laughs) It's not a microwave. You're not going to get your dinner in five minutes. You're going to get your dinner in like eight hours, 10 hours, but you'll get your dinner. And so my crock pot brain just kind of began cooking on that idea that what if Craig isn't choosing this? And I still remember the day that I was sitting by this time we lived in Arizona, we'd moved from Texas and I was sitting in a leather chair and having the thought, I don't think Craig is choosing this. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. And what a mind blowing thought that was, because what it meant was if he's not choosing it, then there's really only one other option. And that is that he's born this way. And if he's born this way, that means God created him this way. And if God created him this way, he must be fine with it. Because how could a loving God create something bad or wrong? Hey, thanks for listening. If this podcast has been helpful to you, I would really appreciate it if you would give me a five-star rating in whatever platform you listen to your podcast. And if you go to my website, sarahfisk.coach, you can sign up there to receive my emails. Right now I'm taking private one-to-one clients who want my help speeding up this work in their own lives. I really hope to provide a lot of free information on my website and in my podcast for people to do this work on their own. But if you're interested in having a coach like me to help you implement these things faster to find the blind spots and obstacles that you're not aware of, go to my website and sign up for a consult. That's a time when you and I can get on Zoom and talk about the particulars of your situation, and I can show you how I could be helpful. The second thing you can do on my website is sign up for a freebie that I have called 
difficult conversations. Having a conversation that seems like it's going to be hard or difficult is one of the things that people pleasers struggle with. And so I've created a whole guide for you to be able to do that with some more confidence. That will also get you signed up for information about my group program, Stop People Pleasing, which is coming again at the end of April, beginning of May. And it's a group coaching program where you join a community of women just like you who are struggling to overcome perfectionating and people pleasing. And we do it together in a group. It's a really amazing opportunity to not just learn from your own experience, but just to see how similar you are to so many other women out there. The healing and the challenging and the laughing and the growth that happens in that beautiful community of women is really amazing. And if it's interesting to you, I would love for you to know about it. Thanks again for listening.